Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Leslie Watts, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle that we want to study this season. Then we team up to look at the idea from all angles and give you, the author, a deep insight into story structure and story principles. This week, Jari pitched The Shawshank Redemption as a great example of set and setting driving dialogue. This 1994 film starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman was directed by Frank Darabont from a screenplay by Frank Darabont based on the novella Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. Valerie, Leslie, Kim, and I will be taking a look at the story through different lenses, sizing up the connections between dialogue and our particular areas of interest for the season. Jari's going to start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Thanks, Anne. So The Shawshank Redemption, from an external genre point of view, is a, a crime prison. An internal one, at least for me, is worldview education. So the beginning hook, when Andy Dufresne is sentenced to life in Shawshank prison for a murder he didn't commit, he must learn to accept his fate or lose his mind or his life fighting it. With the help of fellow inmate Red, he appears to accept his situation. In the middle build, Andy builds a life for himself inside the prison using his education and financial skills. But when new inmate Tommy reveals that he knows who really committed the murder Andy was convicted of, Andy must try to convince the tyrannical warden to advocate for reopening his case, risking severe punishment for stepping out of line. He pleads and is punished by solitary confinement. Ending payoff. When the warden has Tommy murdered in order to silence him and keep the useful Andy working for him, Andy must choose whether to knuckle under and keep cooking the books or give up. He appears to give up, but instead escapes through a tunnel he's been digging for 20 years, exposing the crimes of the warden and his cronies and making a new life for himself and his friend Red in Mexico. Okay, thanks, Jerry. Before I turn it back over to you to make your case for set and setting driving dialogue, I'd like to read a short quote. This comes from Invisible Ink by Brian McDonald. This is one of my favorite books on story, and it has the apt subtitle of A Practical Guide to Building Stories That Resonate. He devotes a chapter to dialogue, and here's a key thing that he has to say. One of the things that drives me crazy when people talk about good dialogue is that they never talk about how well it's used, only how it stood out. Some of the best dialogue is quiet and subtle and reveals things about the plot, theme, or character with the precision of a surgeon. Sometimes that means it's not quotable, but quotable dialogue is not the primary job of the storyteller. I'll just add here that great lines and quotable dialogue can become emblems of a whole movie. We've all seen it happen. Some quotable line movies off the top of my head, this is from my own film background, your mileage may vary, include Young Frankenstein, O Brother, Where Art Thou?, and The Princess Bride. And as we saw last season, The Wizard of Oz has generated so many quotable and favorite lines that it's become kind of its own meme factory. Sometimes the memorableness of a line comes from the hilarious delivery. My grandfather's work was doo-doo! Sometimes from how useful the line is in everyday life. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Sometimes from its repetition in the film. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And sometimes from its sheer oddity. We thought he was a toad. So do quotable lines make a great story? No, but they certainly don't ruin a great story either. I agree with Brian McDonald, however, that aiming for quotable lines over good story principles is very likely to backfire on you. As I mentioned in the teaser, I've been reading Robert McKee's book on dialogue. And I finished it the other day and found it extremely useful and enlightening. And as we go on through this season, I'll be adding more of what I've learned in there. I also found another great book on dialogue called How to Write Dazzling Dialogue by James Scott Bell. So those are the two main books that I'm going to use this season to analyze dialogue and how set and setting drives dialogue. And so recall from the McKee book, the reasons why great dialogue is essential to a great story. 
No matter how lavish a play's production, how vivid a novel's descriptions, how lush a film's photography, character talk shapes the deepest complexities, ironies, and innerness of story. Without expressive dialogue, events lack depth, characters lose dimension, and story flattens. More than any other technique of characterization, gender, age, dress, class, casting, dialogue has the power to pull a story through life's multi-layer strata, thus lifting a merely complicated telling into a full array of complexity. Remember, again, that dialogue, at least for me, is the yin to narrative yang. And achieving that perfect balance is the highest form of storytelling. And so we'll talk more about how that plays with each other. There are actually a few gems from both McKee and Bell that I like to guide us on this exploration of dialogue, especially, you know, this season. The first one is from McKee, and it's the three functions of dialogue. The three functions are exposition, the fictional facts of setting, what's the character's environment, characterization, a character's total appearance, the sum of all surface traits and behaviors, and then the action, what a character does, mental, physical, and verbal. So all great dialogue does one or more of these things at the same time. That's what makes it interesting and engaging. And so along with the functions of dialogue, McKee also has the six tasks of dialogue. And so the first one is each verbal expression takes an interaction. Hey, Jerry, can I interrupt for a second and ask you to clarify that? I, I don't understand what McKee means by that one. Okay, so, you know, all of us, before we speak, before we say anything, there's something inside us that prompts us to do something. It's a thought, it's a reaction, it's biochemistry. So whatever the character is going to say, it has to have come down from deep inside them. But it's the interaction, the rumination in, in the character's head, the rumination in our own head that makes us say something. So when we're fighting with a spouse or a partner, the thoughts in our head is the interaction that's driving us to say the things we say. Does that answer your question, Anne? It does. And it sounds a lot like essential action. I just wanted to add one other thing here before you carry on with the other five of McKee's tasks of dialogue, that he mentions action is what a character does, mental, physical, and verbal. So dialogue is a form of action, which I think is a really important point. Not high action, but it's doing something by saying something. Yeah. You want to kind of craft your dialogue to always be doing something that's going to be moving the story forward. Number two is each beat of action reaction intensifies the scene, building to and around a turning point. Uh, statements and allusions within the lines convey exposition. So there are some things that are coming out of the dialogue that may not be in the narration. A unique verbal style characterizes each role. So the people talk in a certain way that you can recognize. The flow of progressive beats captivates the reader and audience, carrying them on a wave of narrative drive, unaware of the passage of time. So good dialogue is going to be effortless to read, and it's going to build the stakes. And number six, the language strikes the reader audience as authentic in its setting and true to the character, thus maintaining the belief in the story's fictional reality. The characters need to have authentic and true dialogue to them and the set and setting that they're in. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So... As you can see, dialogue like narrative does a lot of heavy lifting in a story. In fact, if you think about it, there are only two things in a story, dialogue and narrative. They're the only things that drive story forward. When it comes to set and setting driving dialogue, the functions and tasks above that get impacted are in the functions part, it's the exposition, the characterization, and the action. In the tasks, it's going to be number three, conveying exposition, four, unique verbal style, and six, authentic and true to the character. So when we go through this, I'll try to go through these functions and tasks, and we'll put those in the show notes. So for the Shawshank Redemption, you know, we have the setting of Shawshank Prison. The majority of the story is set in the prison. The language will be crude, rude, and vulgar. Anything that resembles a posh and polished kind of language will be out of place. In general, we're going to expect prison talk and slang. As for the mindset, each character has a mindset that they select the words they use. Andy, for example, is educated. His mindset is going to be more intellectual. He ponders, while Haywood is a hick. Um, Haywood reciting Shakespeare would be kind of out of place. Also, you'll notice that the talking about the beats and the action reaction are not at the scene level. Dialogue, most of the time, has to be analyzed at the beat level because there will be multiple beats of dialogue in a scene. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't look at it from the whole scene point of view, but for writers, it's particularly important to get the dialogue narrative balance right 
and those are at the beats. So you may have some dialogue and then some narrative and then some more dialogue and some more narrative as you are going through the five commandments. You want to make that progressive complications as we talk about when it comes to scenes and writing. And so in my opinion, Shawshank Redemption does dialogue masterfully, masterfully, sorry, <laughs> even better which can be a little bit on the nose, there's a narrator. So you'll get the dialogue and then what would have been in the book, the narration from Red. And remember, in this whole span of time at Shawshank, you're going to have to use some narration and some voiceover to get, to get it all in. So to quickly review, set is the character's mindset and setting is the physical environment she finds herself in. And I first read about set and setting of all places, Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind. <laughs> the context of that was psychedelic trips, uh, which will be heavily influenced on the participants' mindset and setting. And I think that same holds true for dialogue. So the first one we're going to talk about is when new prisoners arrive at Shawshank Prison. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Grass belongs to me. And so in this whole story, the warden is the main antagonist with the captain of the guard. Um, Hadley is his henchman. The total scene is really simple dialogue with the captain of the guard, you know, being prompted to beat up an inmate. You see that later on. And I think it's the perfect mix between the calm and the violence, the warden and Hadley. The warden's beat of dialogue, it's just essential to set up what the expectations are at Shawshank. And sometimes you have to do that by saying what they are. And so... If you apply the rules above on the function of dialogue, so we'll talk about the function, the characterization. This shows what who the warden is. He's a Bible-quoting hard-ass. And it blends with the narration, the action, when he nods to Haley to, to punch an inmate. So that's number one. Number three is it conveys exposition on the task side. How will life at Shawshank be? It will be hard and without compromise. And it is, number six as well, authentic and true to character, especially for the warden. He's Bible quoting. He's a hardliner on reform. The words the warden says are true, and it's even how he dresses right down to the cross on his lapel. The next one we're going to talk about is the first meeting between Red and Andy. And the scene in the dialogue foreshadows, I think, what's going to take place during this entire movie. I'm Andy Dufresne. Wife killing banker. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you ask. <laughs> you can fit right in. Everybody in there is innocent. You know that? Hey, what you in here for? Didn't do it. I understand you're a man that knows how to get things. I'm known to locate certain things from time to time. I wonder if you might get me a rock hammer. What? A rock hammer. What is it and why? What do you care? Well, if it was a toothbrush, I wouldn't ask questions. I'd just quote a price. But then a toothbrush is a non-lethal object, isn't it? Fair enough. Rock hammer is about six or seven inches long. Looks like a miniature pickaxe. Pickaxe? Rocks. Rocks. Quartz? Quartz. Some mica. Shale. Limestone. So? So I'm a rock hound. At least I was in my old life. I'd like to be again on a limited basis. Or maybe you'd like to sink your toe into somebody's skull. No, sir. I have no enemies here. No? Wait a while. Word gets around. Sisters have taken quite a liking to you, especially Boggs. Don't suppose it would help any if I explained to them I'm not homosexual. Neither are they. They have to be human first. They don't qualify. But if I were you, I'd grow eyes in the back of my head. Thanks for the advice. Well, that's free. You understand my concern. Well, if there's any trouble, I won't use the rock hammer, okay? Then I'd guess you want to escape. Tunnel under the wall, maybe. <laughs> I missed something here. It was funny. You understand when you see the rock hammer. This is the first dialogue between Red and Andy. It sets up what's to come between them. It's brilliant because it shows and tells how each is sizing each other up. It also alludes to the harsh reality of the sisters' relentless attacks, which is a foreshadow of what's to come. Red's narration that follows confirms that Andy is different, and Red seems to believe that he's innocent, or at least half believes he's innocent. So if we apply the rules, the functions one, exposition, the reality of life in prison, characterization. Red is a wise person that can help Andy. Andy is a cold fish. In action, Andy wants to collect rocks. On the task side, interaction. Red's concern for Andy's safety, along with what he's going to do with the hammer. The verbal style, use of rock hound and homosexual, the use of locate certain things from time to time by Red. Captivates. Hey, we'll 
well, Red, get the rock hammer for Andy. And it is also authentic and true to character. As we go through this, you'll see how all of these both functions and tasks apply. Uh, the next one we'll talk about is the theme of the story, and which perfectly encapsulate this by this real brief exchange after Andy gets put in the hole for playing music. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. I need it so you don't forget. Forget. Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's a there's something inside that they can't get to, that they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. Like Brooks did. This is the statement of the theme of the movie, hope. That's something they can't take away from him. Without hope, he would never have dug the hole out of the cell, since it's clearly a fool's errand to escape. That scene also happens to be the midpoint shift. So if you apply the rules, as we've talked about above, the functions, it's characterization, and he's hopeful that even that he's going to get through all this and get out. On the tasks, it's the interaction. Red expresses his concern that Andy may be going insane. It intensifies the scene, calls back to Brooks. Will Andy or Red go insane like Brooks? Conveys exposition, picturing life on the outside, something without things made of stone. The verbal style, Andy's philosophy of life, captivates the reader, you know, will Andy convince Red that hope's important? And both are true to character. As the movie goes on, Andy actually changes. He's now getting more and more valuable to the warden, and he's actually now becoming a crook. You know, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Ah! Andy is smiling the whole time he's saying this, and he is actually proud of what he's accomplished on the inside. For him, it almost looks like life seems to be worth living. He's actually built a life for himself. So when you apply the rules, the functions, it's characterization, what he's like on the outside and the inside, the action, he's actually turned into a crook. On the tasks, the interaction, Andy reveals what he was like on the outside. It intensifies the scene because Red is really interested on how Andy's hiding the money. Exposition details how all that transaction's happening. It captivates, you know, hey, how did Andy really hide the money? And it's authentic again and true to the character. He uses, Andy uses his smarts to hide the money and no one else can do that. And so the next one is where hope seems to be lost. I'm sure by now you've heard terrible thing. Man that young, less than a year to go, trying to escape. Broke Captain Hadley's heart to shoot him. Truly it did. We just have to put it behind us. Move on. I'm done. Everything stops. Get someone else to run your skills. Nothing stops. Nothing. Well, you will do the hardest time there is. No more protection from the guards. I'll pull you out of that one bunk Hilton and cast you down with the sodomites. In the library? gone, sealed off brick by brick. We'll have us a little book barbecue in the yard. We'll see the flames for miles. We'll dance around it like wild engines. You understand me? Catching my drift? Or am I being obtuse? Give him another month to think about it. For Andy, this is his all is lost moment. He has to decide whether he was going to continue to run the scams or suffer the consequences. And I think at this point, he's like, I got to get out of Shawshank. And so again, applying the rules as above, exposition, what life will be like if Andy doesn't cooperate, characterization, fully in line with the warden's attitude and a shift for Andy, but within his character. And then the action is he gets another month in the hole. On the tasks... The interaction, Andy's desire not to scam, the warden's strong desire for him to keep it up what's going on with the status quo. 
it intensifies the scene as the warden ramps up the tension on all the bad things that will happen. It conveys exposition, the life Anthony will have without the cooperation, the verbal style of the warden using engines and restating obtuse. It captivates like what's going to happen, how's he going to handle this, and it's true to character. Uh, the final bit of dialogue I'd like to share is the one that's sort of the most quoted of all from this movie. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. This is just shitty pipe dreams. I mean, Mexico is way to hell down there, and you're in here, and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is. It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, you get busy dying. This last bit of dialogue is the theme of the movie restated. It's how hope's expressed. The nature of hope is there's something to live for. Without that, you might as well die. Red actually is changing his mind about this hope, and he knows that Andy's not going to give up hope. So on this particular thing of dialogue, uh, the functions, the characterization, Red is doubtful, Andy's hopeful. The action, Andy's desire to escape Shawshank. On the task, the interaction, it's again, Red's doubt, Andy's hope. The verbal style, you know, Red saying way the hell down there. Andy says down there. You notice no swearing on Andy's part. Andy doesn't swear a lot in this film. There's only a couple times that are pretty poignant. And these are authentic and true to the character. Red's always been skeptical because he's been denied parole so much. And now Andy's hopeful since he actually has a plan to get out of Shawshank. Uh, dialogue, I think, has to be analyzed at the beat level, since most of the time there'll be multiple beats of dialogue in a scene, and it'll be separated by a narration. Dialogue beats are going to impact the scene, so you got to look at the whole thing and how the whole thing works. But I think, in general, if you're having dialogue problems, it's, it's good to look at the beat level and see how the dialogue and the narration are fitting together. I'll be looking a little bit more at some of those analysis tools in subsequent podcasts. I'm going to turn this over to Valerie, who I know has quite a lot to say on the subject. So, Valerie? When, when do I not have quite a lot to say? <laughs> so true. true of all of us, Valerie. Um, okay, so one of, the th- one of the things that Jari has just been talking about is that what the character is saying has to be within character, which makes complete sense, right? On an intellectual level, we got that. And the reason why is when a character suddenly starts talking not like themselves, it sticks right out. And for me, this happened in Red's speech where he's talking about Brooks being institutionalized. So let's take a listen to that and then I'll tell you what I think about it. Brooks ain't no bug. It's just, just institutionalized. Institutionalized my ass. The man's been in here 50 years, Haywood. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used-up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm trying to say? Fred, I do believe you're talking out of your ass. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, and you get used to them. Enough time passes get so you depend on as institutionalized red's first line brooks ain't no bug that sounds like brooks he's just institutionalized sounds like andy if andy had said that no one would have batted an eyelash now the problem i have is not that red comprehends that this is what happened to brooks because red although we sort of understand that he may not have had the benefit of formal education, he is nonetheless an intelligent man. So he totally would have picked up on what has happened to Brooks and he's living it himself, right? But that bit of dialogue, it sounds more like the writer jumping into the script. So Anne and Kim actually credit to them for pulling out the novella and seeing how Red handles this in prose. And here's what Red has to say. Yeah, I guess the state got its own back on Brooksy, all right. They trained him to like it on the inside of the shithouse, and then they threw him out. Like, I'm totally on board with that coming out of Red's mouth. Anyway, so that was just a little bit on why you want a character's dialogue to be in character. 
Because anytime we break the magic in a story, uh, we risk the audience putting the book down and not picking back up. Jari talks about dialogue needing to be analyzed on the beat level. And Jari, with all due respect, I got to say, I'm not with you on this one. (laughs) Uh, It can be, absolutely it can be, but I'm not sure I follow why it must be. So I'm really looking forward to the further study that you do in future episodes, just to see where you're coming from with that. I'm on it. I'm on it. (laughs) I know you are. (laughs) There are some terrific moments or beats within scenes that have interesting dialogue. No doubt about it. There's quotable dialogue in scenes that aren't so clever and quotable dialogue in scenes that are wonderfully clever. The reason why I'm stumbling on this is because the beat level is the actor's medium. And in a novel, we certainly can analyze our scenes at the beat level, but that's, you know, that way madness lies. For novelists, we want to focus on the scene level and go into the beat level only when we know there's something in the scene that's not working. And then we can pinpoint that beat within the scene and fix it. At the scene level, dialogue is one of the ways that literal and essential action can shine. And I know Kim and Leslie are going to talk more about that in a minute. So I'll just leave it at that. It's what allows us to have subtext And just like Anne said off the top, the best dialogue is invisible. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I know we're talking about Shawshank Redemption this week, but I want to play you a clip from The King's Speech. We studied this film last season, and honestly, the more I analyze this screenplay, the better it gets. So I'm probably going to be talking about it a bit. Here's the scene. I vouched for you, and you have no credentials. But lots of success. I can't show you a certificate. There was no training then. Everything I know, I know from experience, and that war was some experience. My plaque says L. Logue speech defects, not doctor. There are no letters after my name. Lock me in the tower. I would, if I could. On what charge? Fraud. With war looming, you've saddled this nation with a voiceless king. You've destroyed the happiness of my family, all for the sake of ensnaring a star patient you couldn't possibly hope to assist. It'll be like mad King George III. It'll be mad King George the Stammerer, who let his people down so badly in their hour of need. What are you doing? Get up, you can't sit there, get up! Why not? It's a chair. No, it, that is not a chair, that is, that is, that is St. Edward's chair. People have that carved their names on it. Chair is the seat on which every king it's held and queen... by a large rock. That is the stone of Schoon, you are, are trivializing oh, you everything. You trivialize... I don't care you, how many royal assholes have sat Listen to me! Listen to me! Listen to you, by what right? By divine right, if you must, I am your king! No, you're not, you told me so yourself, you said you didn't want it. Why should I waste my time listening to Because you? I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Yes, you do. The King's Speech is an entire film about speaking, or rather, the inability to speak, as it were. There are any number of scenes I could have chosen to discuss the effective use of dialogue, but I like this one because Bertie finally embraces his voice. It's a pivotal moment in his development as a man and as a king, and it's a pivotal moment in the relationship between Bertie and Lionel. So the scene starts with a discussion on the term doctor. So they're even talking about language in this particular scene and whether the word doctor really holds any meaning. So while this is a fascinating bit of dialogue on the surface, the subtext is heartbreaking. Bertie feels betrayed. He thinks that the one friend he has in the world has used him and has made a fool of him. Now, of course, neither of those things are true, but we see from the opening of this scene that Bertie is used to being treated that way. So he really quickly jumps to that conclusion about Lionel. This whole passage encompasses the inciting incident and a number of progressive complications. And it naturally flows to the turning point of the scene when Bertie sees Lionel in the chair to the crisis. Does Bertie try to stammer out the words to get Lionel out of St. Edward's chair or does he remain silent? To the climax, which is the big argument the two guys have. Finally, to the resolution, which is when Bertie says, I have a voice. 
Every line of dialogue in the scene moves the scene forward. Their conversation works at the essential level and at the literal level. And if I had time to do a full analysis, I'm sure I would find that it's on theme as well. And as an added bonus, there's also some great quotable lines in the scene. For example, when Lionel says, I don't care how many royal arseholes have sat in this chair. That makes me laugh every time. Or better still, Bertie's line, I have a voice. So yeah, we can absolutely analyze dialogue on the beat level, but for novelists, I still think the scene level is where we need to hang out. So I'm, I'm looking forward to what you have to say about this. When dialogue, we're talking about what is said. In Shawshank Redemption, I think what isn't said, particularly by Andy, is also really important because he doesn't say very much. So when he does talk, it's super important. For example, the first thing he says after he gets to the prison is, does anyone know his name? Remember the new prisoner who was beaten up his first night there and died? Everyone knows he died. Andy's the one who asked what his name was. So that really tells you about Andy's character. The biggest thing I want to talk about, though, is the voiceover narration. Now, <laughs> Kim took me a little to task on this offline, <laughs> and I see her point, because voiceover narration is one of those things that some people, like Robert McKee, really have a bee in their bonnet over, and I'm not a big fan of it either, but my personal preference as to whether I like voiceover narration or not is irrelevant. So let's take that off the table. The reason I don't think it works in Shawshank Redemption is because it's unnecessary. If you go back through, and this speaks directly to narrative drive, okay? If you go back through the film, and I challenge everyone listening to do this, go back through the film, stop the film at each after each of Red's narrations, and ask yourself, is he telling me something I didn't already know? information I couldn't pick up from watching the screen, because film is a visual medium, you know, from the actor's portrayal of the scene, or information I couldn't have figured out. So is it literally on the screen, or could I have figured it out from what's going on? 95% of the time, what Red is saying is a repetition of what's on the screen. For example, the scene where they're tarring the roof and the, the guys are drinking the beer. We see Haywood pick up a beer, bring it over, and Andy says, no thanks, I don't drink. We see Andy sitting there, smiling. Everything that we see on that, that part, Red repeats. Red also then says, I think he did it just to feel normal. I don't think we need Red to tell us that. I think Tim Robbins, his acting tells us that. So I thought, I think it's unnecessary. Now, sometimes in the narration, Red is telling us something that we couldn't have known any other way. For example, when Boggs is being taken off in the ambulance, Red tells us that Boggs doesn't return to Shawshank. I think that bit of information could have been given to the audience in a better way than by literally telling us in a voiceover narration, I mean. It could have been woven into another conversation somewhere along the line, in a walk and talk, maybe when they're on their way to uh, lunch something like that. So in a film, voiceovers tend to be used as exposition. Now, that's a pretty blanket statement, and I know there are examples where that's not the case. But in Shawshank Redemption, it is primarily exposition. Now, novelists use exposition too, and usually that's in the form of an information dump, right? Like it's really tempting for us to write long passages giving the reader background information on the character. Instead, what I'm challenging everyone to do is to level up. Find those long passages of exposition in your writing and use them instead as ammunition. Use it to move the story forward. That's narrative drive. Because narrative drive, remember, is all about how much information the reader has in relation to the protagonist. It's all about creating curiosity in the reader so that they turn the page. They want to know what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. If you have, in a film, a narrator who's telling you all the answers to your questions, or in a novel, a long passage of exposition telling the reader all the answers to the questions, you're killing curiosity, which kills narrative drive. We've got to wonder what's going on.
That's fantastic. And, you know, when you um, run your eye down your own writing, right, like it's on the screen and you're looking through your manuscript, you've got this big visual cue about what might be excessive narration, excessive exposition. It's like you say, big chunks with no dialogue in them. Yeah. And it's so it's like it may, it's like a little trick you can use when you're editing, run your eye down the page. And if you see big chunks with no dialogue in them, consider whether there could be something cut and carefully folded into dialogue in another conversation. Like you said, that, that was great, Valerie. Thank you. So, Kim, what do you have for us? Every utterance, however intangible, is at some level an expression of intent. This is a quote from a book I got at Christmas this last year, written by John York, and it's titled Into the Woods, A Five-Act Journey into Story. It's a craft book, but his specific intent is to understand not just the what and the how of the observable truths that make great stories, but why there is an observable truth and why it is what it is. This quote is the opening line to his chapter on dialogue and characterization, and it struck me when I read it as this clear shout out to essential action. And Anne and Leslie wrote up this great post about it and recorded a great bite-sized episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. But here's just a quick recap of essential action. Essential action is best understood in tandem with its partner in crime, literal action. Together, they further the character's efforts to get what they want. Literal action refers to the actual verbs the character is doing, the things that could be observed with the five senses by other characters. Essential action is the underlying motivation, the intent of these actions. It's the thing the character really wants, and they'll adjust their literal actions as necessary to try to achieve it. Great stories and great scenes align the literal actions with the essential action to do more than meets the eye, or in the case of dialogue, more than meets the ear. Dialogue, the words we say and how we say them, is a literal action, which I believe Anne pointed out earlier, that it is an actual action. In order to create great dialogue, we must first understand a character's intent. That is their essential action. What do they want? What do they really, really want? They can want anything, but it must be specific. Side note, it's taking me everything I have not to bust up the Spice Girls right here. You know I'm going to put a clip in there, right? I knew you would. (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally fine with it. So the go-to guide for understanding essential action, besides our lovely Anne and Leslie's post, is Practical Aesthetics, which is developed by David Mamet and William H. Macy. In their work, they teach actors how to identify a character's want and boil it down into an essential action phrase, that is, a phrase of intent. They cite 11 of these phrases that cover the root of all human intent. And you could argue that there are more, but it often comes down to semantics and a preference for personal clarity. I've listed all 11 in the show notes. In terms of dialogue, if we know a character's intent, we can craft words that help them pursue it though certainly they won't always achieve it. Let's take a look at one of the examples Jarius provided and look at it in context of the character's essential action. It's the scene where Andy shows up in the cafeteria after being in the hole for a week, which was his punishment for turning up the music in spite of the warden's demands to turn it off, which was such a great moment. So the guys are razzing him, and he says it was the easiest time he's ever done, and they call bullshit. No such thing as easy time in the hole at which point I believe Andy's essential action becomes to enlighten someone to a higher understanding. He tries to explain that he had the music with him, and they misunderstand and they think he's got special privileges and was able to take the record player with him. He clarifies that it was in his mind and in in his heart, and they don't really know how to respond to that, so he explains some more. That's the beauty of music. They can't get it from you. You need it so you don't forget. Up to this point, Red has been silent. I believe that what Andy is saying, as well as the way he is saying it, triggers Red negatively. It conflicts with his worldview. Andy's phrase, so you don't forget, is an inciting incident for Red, and his essential action becomes, get to the bottom of something. So Red says, forget. And Andy says, forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's something inside they can't get to, that they can't touch, that's yours. And Red, what are you talking about? Andy. Hope. And when Andy says the word hope, this is a revelatory turning point for Red. He doesn't need to get to the bottom of it anymore. He knows. And he doesn't like it. 
At this point, he can either keep silent or be agreeable or challenge his friend. His climax is a new essential action, I'd say, to lay down the law. When Red says, let me tell you something, my friend, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's no use on the inside. Better get used to that idea. Now, Red's climax is a turning point for Andy, which he can either stay silent and agreeable, which would align with an essential action of, say, to get someone on my team, or he could challenge back. His climactic choice is to challenge back. And Andy says, like Brooks did. But I think that Andy's essential action remains consistent, even in his climax. He's still trying to enlighten someone to a higher understanding. In this case, he's doing it by showing Red a different point of view rather than going on and on about hope. This essential action doesn't exist in a vacuum. It stems from a character's global wants and needs, which are driven by the content genre and life values at stake. In order to determine an internal genre, Norman Friedman outlined three aspects for the protagonist. Their level of thought, which is their worldview, their level of fortune, that is their status, and their level of character, that is their morality, which encompasses their inner moral code and their strength of will. He looks at these levels at the beginning of the story and then how they change over the course of the story and finally where they reside at the end of the story. Each character in every genre is going to have these aspects and levels, whether they change or not. A character's level of thought and worldview is how the character sees the world, their unique perspective and belief systems. It refers to their level of sophistication. So, for example, are they naive? Are they cynical? Wise? Judgmental? Hoodwinked? Think of different characters, a child, a war veteran, a priest, a mother who's lost her husband, an innocent man convicted and sent to prison. So much of the characterization, the backstory, and the present circumstances of the plot will shape their thought. We ask ourselves, what is the character's level of thought on page one? What made them that way? What is their level of thought at the end of the beginning hook, the midpoint, the end of the middle build, and then what is on the final page, and what made them that way? You can walk through the same mental exercise for fortune, that is, what is their fortune or external circumstances, sickness, health, rich, poor, supported, abandoned, and also their moral character. Are they selfish and self-serving, or are they selfless? Are they deceitful, honest, spineless, or determined? So you can see how all of these create an expectation for how the character would act, how they would speak, or if they would speak at all. And as Valerie had mentioned, this is like rests in music. Often it is what goes unsaid that can be the most revealing about a character, such as Andy, and can carry the most meaning. Once you get a bead on the character's thought, fortune, and moral character, you have the foundation for their set. And I encourage you to get specific with details. It will empower you to write from a place of authority and to truly give your characters their own voice. This same exercise will work for all aspects of story, but with regard to what a character says... When you have a story that's told from a first-person narrator, as is in the case with The Shawshank Redemption, both the film version and the original novella, the set is going to inform the entire narrative, not just the dialogue that's in quotes. Understanding your character's set, that is, their level of thought, fortune, and character, as well as the specific circumstances that shaped those thought, fortune, and character, this is essential and will empower you to identify authentic essential actions for your characters and craft authentic dialogue that further those actions. That was a tour de force, Kim. Thank you. You have successfully convinced me of the connection between what Jari is calling set and setting and the Friedman framework that we have been studying for such a long time now. That was wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. I'm glad. So, Leslie, I'm going to turn it over to you to dig a little deeper into the conventions and the dialogue in Shawshank Redemption. Thanks, Anne. I'm studying conventions this season, and I wanted to look at the elements that you consider related to conventions as you draft and revise dialogue so that it supports your story's genre. So I'm focusing more on the setting as opposed to the set, though there are some elements that kind of overlap both concepts. Dialogue can be used, of course, to establish conventions. An obvious example is the speech and praise of the villain in an action story. But also your conventions give you fodder for your dialogue because, as we've heard, dialogue isn't just conversation. 
but I ran into a little snag with the external genre and its conventions, and I want to share that journey to show you how I made peace with this genre. But before I get into that, let me take a step back and review what conventions are and what they do. Conventions are the characters, setting, or circumstances, and ways of turning the plot that set up reader expectations. Think of them as the requisite ingredients to create the life value shift required by your genre. So your story's style, the position on the reality continuum, and the sales category can all contribute conventions to your story that create the conditions for a story of its kind. But really here, I'm focusing on the external genre. Sean has identified the Shawshank Redemption as a crime prison story, but this story doesn't walk and talk like your typical murder mystery within the crime genre, so I needed to do a little detective work of my own. The description in the story grid text is that prison stories are told from the prisoner's point of view. Compare that with most murder mysteries, which follow the investigation of a murder by an amateur or professional detective. Sean also indicates that the primary question is, will they solve the riddle of how they were set up? Now, this isn't Andy's question precisely in The Shawshank Redemption, because he isn't framed as far as we know. It's more that he's allowed to take the fall. But he still has to wonder who really killed his wife and her lover. And we wonder this as well, given Andy's insistence that he's innocent. Also, in her Fundamental Fridays post on the crime genre, Rochelle Ramirez noted that the crime prison stories have a society element. We can, in fact, feel the power struggle in this story between Andy and his allies on the one hand and the guards within the walls of the prison. Beyond being released as an actual innocent, that is, to see justice done, what does Andy want? Well, he wants to gain personal power, or in Red's parlance, to feel normal. So Kim and I put our thinking caps on to get to the bottom of what's going on in this story and other prison stories like it. And we found it's useful to look at how they're the same and how they're different from the other crime subgenres. The first thread we followed relates to the protagonist. As Sean says, the protagonist is usually the criminal rather than the detective or the victim or some other person in the story. And prison stories have this in common with a few other crime subgenres, which includes the heist, which is a professional group of criminals, the caper, an amateur group of criminals, organized crime, where you have a criminal organization, and of course the prison subgenre, where the prisoner is wrongly convicted or otherwise suffers an injustice within prison. And I'll have examples of each of those in the show notes. Well, next we wanted to look at what else do these subgenres have in common? Well, we generally root for the criminal and wonder if they will get away, rather than hoping that the detective will expose the criminal and bring them to justice. Among other inquiries, these stories explore why people commit crimes and what people are willing to do to pursue the security or success that they need. Now, also, experience tells the criminal protagonist that they have no legitimate avenue to meet their security needs, or, in the alternative, they suffer some grave misfortune. They seek alternate means to meet these needs, and this seems to be the source of the society element that we notice in these stories. Finally, the positive life value shift tends to land on poetic justice rather than what we might call pure justice, and that usually means something other than exposing the criminal, though it might, as it does in this case. The criminal might not get away completely, but there is some fitting end in store for them. So we can use these observations to begin to craft a working hypothesis of this particular subgenre, including its conventions. And we can use this hypothesis to test by watching more of these movies and reading more of these stories. 
So crime story conventions, as modified by the hypothesis from the different stories I've talked about today, including the Shawshank Redemption, include a victim, a villain, and an investigator of some sort, someone who has an interest in exposing the true villain. These are roles, not necessarily characters, so they can shift from time to time. And so I see Andy as both the victim and investigator. Now, he's not the only victim in this story, but but he is one in the primary. The villain is both Blatch and the warden because they both, in different ways, are victimizing Andy. The next convention that I would look at is that the prisoner or criminal is sympathetic. And the way that this is shown in the story is when Andy asks about the dead prisoner when no one else bothers. He, you know, wants to know, does anyone know his name? You know, like he he cares about recognizing that someone has died. The next convention is the MacGuffin, and this is the criminal's object of desire. But I think we should still highlight the external antagonist's object of desire as opposed to looking at it from the protagonist's point of view. In the Shawshank Redemption, Blatch wants his freedom. The warden wants to maintain power and benefit financially. And both characters express these MacGuffins through dialogue. We have investigative red herrings. Now, in a heist, caper, and organized crime stories, these would consist of the steps that the protagonist or protagonists take to cover up their crime. In a prison story, however, the red herrings are more likely to be the evidence that tends to link the protagonist unjustly on some level to the crime. And so in the Shawshank Redemption, we get all of this, the circumstantial evidence of his guilt that comes in in the court scene through the district attorney's dialogue. The next convention is making it personal. And this is where the external antagonist needs something from the protagonist in order to get away with their own crime. Now, I'm not sure if this is present in the heist or how that works, but in terms of the Shawshank Redemption, the warden needs Andy to keep doing his accounting work to keep the criminal enterprise afloat. So he tells him, Nothing stops when Andy protests that he won't work anymore. And the threat that he backs his uh, his demand up with is that Andy will do the hardest time and that the warden will shut the library up brick by brick. The final conventional convention for a crime story that I want to look at is the clock. And that's that there's a limited time to act for the protagonist or the villain. In The Shawshank Redemption, Andy feels an urgency to act on Tommy's information, and he calls the warden obtuse because he doesn't seem to get it, you know, that this is really important, that they need to act on it. So then I want to look at some potentially subgenre-specific conventions based on the observations. And again, these aren't official, but educated guesses based on discussions and what we've observed. So you might want to test these out in stories of this kind. So the first is that you have fellow prisoners who are allies to the protagonist. And of course, we have Red, Haywood, Brooks, Floyd, Tommy, etc. That seems really important in these films and stories in general. You have opposing groups among the prisoners. So, of course, we have Boggs' group, the sisters, that oppose Red and Andy and their group. You have corrupt officials, the warden and or the guards. And we've got that in spades here with warden, the warden and Hadley. We have to establish the injustice. So Andy consistently maintains that he is evidence. And, of course, the truth uh, bears that out. These stories explore how prisoners deal with the difficulty of facing injustice and or prison life. And we get Red explaining that everyone must find a way to occupy their minds to avoid going insane. Also explore why those who are guilty commit their crimes. 
So Red tells the parole board he was young and stupid and regrets what he did, but we also get an exploration of why Andy leaves and why Red breaks his parole. Finally, in terms of the setting, obviously we have to have a prison for a prison story, and Shawshank is characterized really accurately by the warden's welcome speech. Another thing a lot of these stories have in common is that they are often paired with status internal genres, which Kim is going to talk about next. Because, by the way, we don't think that the external crime prison genre is the global one. So when Leslie and I met up, we had two running hypotheses, hypotheses, hypotheses. It felt like either it was a status admiration like Gladiator or morality testing triumph like Cool Hand Luke. In order to test this, we went to our favorite tool, Friedman's Framework, and I'm going to have all of that, all those details in the show notes lined out exactly kind of how we went through and the conclusions that we came to, so you can follow that. And ultimately, we did land on status admiration. We have this statement. When Andy Dufresne, a strong-willed intellect who champions truth and hope, is falsely imprisoned for 20 years and maintains his strength of will and belief in hope, he is enabled to tunnel to freedom. That's probably not perfect, but we feel like that's really what the story is about. And I have some more information about the controlling idea, as well as the in and out of the story with some excerpts from the screenplay to help show why we're saying not only that it's a status admiration story, but why we're saying status admiration is the global story. I encourage you to check out the show notes on that. Uh, One final note that I want to mention is you may be surprised uh, that this story is not a morality redemption story uh, since it is named in the title. But in this case, it refers to the redemption or returning and reclaiming of his status as a free man, not the redemption of his morality, which would be an arc that goes from the negation of the negation, you know, like selfishness masters altruism, and then it would change to some measure of sacrifice. That is not what Andy goes through. On the other hand, the warden is a perfect example of the life value of selfishness masked as altruism, and he suffers a morality punitive plot to which we all say, hooray. Hooray, We certainly do, because he certainly got his just desserts in the end. Well, that was amazing, you guys. Wonderful discussion. To wind up the episode, we'd like to take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Twitter from at Abigail K. Perry. And Abigail K. Perry asks, how do you know if a scene starts on a positive or a negative? Do you consider these positive and negative emotions or advancement of plot? And Leslie is going to tackle this one for us. Okay, so this is a great question. And the short answer is that I start with the turning point progressive complication, which reveals the life value at stake in the scene or the sequence actor story. And once you know that, you can look at where the life value begins and ends on the spectrum that you identify. But we determine whether it's positive or negative or double positive or double negative in relation to the global objects of desire. In other words, does the story event of the scene bring the character closer to or further from what they need? So imagine that a Royal Navy sloop is being tossed about by a sudden and violent squall. That's the inciting incident. The captain's goal then is to bring in the sails so the wind won't pull the ship over. Men are sent up into the rigging to accomplish this, but it's slick and windy. The mast holding the rigging where a favorite crew member is working snaps off and falls into the ocean. So those are all progressive complications. The sailors try to save the man who fell overboard, but the sailing master soon realizes that the weight of the rigging in the water is pulling the ship over. Now that's the turning point progressive complication. So that's where we see the life value revealed. The captain must decide whether to cut the rope attaching the mast and the sailor to the ship or try to rescue him and risk the entire ship. And that's the crisis. He cuts the rope. Climax. The sailor is lost in the churning sea, but the ship immediately rights itself. And that's the resolution. The turning point progressive complication shows us that life and death is the value at stake in the scene. So we look at who's alive and then not 
at the beginning and end of the scene. The sailor is alive in the beginning and he's dead at the end. So that suggests that the life value should move from positive to negative, especially if this were an action story where life and death is also the global value at stake. But if this is a war story where the life value is victory with honor or defeat with dishonor, we might say that the ship and the entire crew are at risk at the beginning and safe at the end, with the exception of the sailor who died, which leaves the ship and its crew available to keep fighting the war. That could be a valence shift from negative to positive. And if the global value were internal, for example, status admiration, this could go either way, depending on the protagonist's definition of success and their moral code. Thank you, Leslie. Great answer to a very, very interesting question. If you have a question about dialogue or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. We love to feature your voice on the podcast. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into the Shawshank Redemption. We hope our discussion has given everyone a better grasp of how to write better dialogue in their own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you're interested in hiring a StoryGrid certified editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Next time, join us when Kim will begin her exploration of global internal genre with the fundamentals of caring. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.